1: Talk is about
0: to begin. Hey, 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 come on in.
1: Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. I'm Nathan Baird from Cleveland.com, along with Doug LaMaree and Stephen Means, joining us on a Monday. A little bit out of the ordinary, but obviously an out of the ordinary Monday. It's usually where we do Monday Madness. Today it's more like Monday Sadness, and we're going to get into why we broke down. What happened defensively for Ohio State in that 42-27 loss to Michigan? For Tuesday's pod, we're going to get into what happened to Ohio State offensively in that loss that obviously uh, alters the season, wrecks the season, however you want to say it. That's going to be the bulk of this podcast. But up front, we wanted to talk a little bit about the news that's happened around the program and in college football for the last 24 hours. On my way back from Ann Arbor yesterday, Jack Miller Announced that he is leaving the program. He will transfer elsewhere. Um, what's you know, made, made made the usual sort of gracious statements, but also said it's time for me to play. And I don't think anybody was surprised by this development. We knew that there was going to be attrition in this room, and we knew that it would probably start pretty much immediately. So uh this didn't come as a surprise, obviously, Doug. I thought the important thing is in this whole situation, as far as Ohio state goes is, are some of the unknown things, you know, how, how is the, we talked about this before I thought on the pod you know how does the, how does Jack Miller feel like he was treated during this process? He got a fair shake to be the starting quarterback. And is he moving on prepared to have a good career? And I think he, the way he has talked publicly, he believes that that's true.
2: Yeah, I don't know. He probably should have gone somewhere else. He probably should have decommitted once C.J. Stroud committed over top of him in his own class. I mean, he just never he was always last in however many guys were here. And so that's a tough place to be for a guy who was a really high recruit in high school before he got hurt. And but yes, from an Ohio State. So good luck to him. But from an Ohio State perspective, completely expected. But now you're just on not Kyle McCord watch, but you're curious if, if it could be two this offseason. And if that's the case, then not that you're in trouble or short necessarily, but I do think if that would happen, then you're in a position of like, are you sure this is the right thing to be doing to bring in all these guys? And nobody like is happy being a backup or whatever. So this was the first domino. Good luck to Jack Miller. And if this is it, then this is the offseason that everybody expected. And if it's not it, then we have a larger conversation.
1: Yeah, as inevitable as a departure was, I think you make a good point, Doug, in that during this whole process, even if you thought that Jack Miller was not going to ever start for Ohio State, I think everyone also thought that's actually a pretty good number three quarterback to have, right? I mean, like how many other teams in the Big Ten had a number three quarterback as good as Jack Miller and you hope you never have to use your number three quarterback, but it's a, it's a good insurance policy. And I, I don't buy into how often Ryan day brings this up, but sometimes you need your number three quarterback. So I guess Steven, from your perspective, what is the level of concern here? If this isn't the only attrition in the room and now you're potentially left with, to use Doug's example, CJ Stroud, and Quinn Ewers is the only scholarship quarterbacks for 2022, and then having to cast about for the level of transfer who would be fine coming here to be a number three quarterback or, or relying on a walk on or something along those lines.
0: Sounds like a pretty quality quarterback room to me. I, I think you're fine. I, I think you 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 take this approach knowing this might happen, and as long as I don't want to say the right guys leave, but. In theory, as long as these guys leave in the order in which they committed to Ohio State in the first place, I think this worked out perfectly for Ohio State. Jack Miller was first. He's first in. He's first out the door. From the looks of it, whenever Kyle wants to make that decision, whether it's after the spring or maybe he pops one tomorrow as well, if he's second, then you're fine. you still got your starter and you still got your future, which is ideally where they want to get to anyway, even if they don't necessarily recruit it that way. You fill the room up with as much talent as possible, and then the the guy that you want to be your starter and the guy that's probably going to be your next starter stays. And then you're good. But
2: but by the way, we also had conversations on this podcast where, where people suggested that maybe Jack Miller would hang around like Mac Jones for four years and wait his turn. And he didn't even get the bowl practice. So Mm -hmm. let's stop pretending that that's a thing because they're recruiting too many. That's not the guys they're recruiting right now. Nobody wants to do that. So we can stop having that conversation because they can do that with a guy who's like a three-star or whatever, but that's not what Jack Miller and obviously ever had any intention of doing so we can it, i'm not saying you know whatever it's great again oh well who are your quarterbacks a heisman finalist and number one recruit in the country you're fine but let's let's not pretend let's not pretend that this is some. Um, oh well they'll just no they're bringing in a bunch of guys who all want to play and when they don't play they're going to leave which is fine but that's what it is That's clearly what this is. And if they're going to go get another guy after yours, who's another five-star guy who wants to play right away, this is the kind of thing that's going to keep happening. So let's just make sure we call it what it is, which is this, which is I'm not staying for ball practice in year two. I'm out. So, which is fine.
1: But this is, this is Ryan Day's design. This is what he seems comfortable with, right? I mean, this can't have come as any kind of surprise to him.
0: No, no, that's, it's, None of this is a surprise. Like, he can talk all publicly all he wants it all. He wants everybody to stay. No, he knows how this is going to work. He's going to bring all these really talented guys into a room. The best one's going to emerge to the top. The second best one's going to be the backup, and everybody else is going to leave every single year.
2: And you don't need four awesome scholarship quarterbacks, right? I mean, if, no. McCord, if McCord doesn't go anywhere, they're, they're, they have the best room in the country. They're awesome. And if McCord would go, you're still probably fine. And, I mean, you're still fine. You're still fine if McCord goes, and they'd bring in a transfer quarterback to be the, the emergency guy who would be, you know, the former backup at South Alabama who started seven games two years ago when the starter got hurt, who can't believe he has an Ohio state scholarship and he's your third guy and you're fine. And then they'll bring in a recruit. So it's fine. But this was never going to be a four year bide your time for Jack Mill
1: We're always hesitant to talk about transfer specific guys before they happen, especially when there's like no public, Um, proclamation that it's something they're considering or whatever, but let's be realistic about it. Kamichord does seem like the one that's pinched a little bit here just because C.J. Stroud returns next year as a possible Heisman Trophy winner, a near certain Heisman Trophy finalist coming into next year, and then you've got Ewers coming up behind him and all the accolades that he has. So do you think this is a three-man job in the spring or does Kamichord remove himself from that before that happens.
0: I think, Kyle McCord. this is a tough, I mean, it's a very tall task, a very tough task because of everything you just laid out about what CJ Stroud is. If Kyle McCord is not the starting quarterback next by the end of the spring, he's probably gone because he can't be in this. That's what I'm
1: asking though. Does he stay around for the spring or is does is this not a three man competition for the spring?
0: I think because he's only in year one, he might stay around for the spring.
2: I do think, I mean, Jack Miller, lasted two years, like you take your mm-hmm. two-year shot and then go. I do think there is a somewhat significant difference between transferring after two years and transferring after one. So that, you know, if Kyle McCord, right, that, I mean, to transfer after two, it's like, you know, I, I gave you did what you, shot. Yeah. And it, yeah.
0: To, you were here so for two springs and a, two seasons, and it's pretty clear at yeah. that point that you're probably not going to get on the field. It's not – it's like 85, 90% clear that Kyle's not going to be the starter, but there's still a little bit of wiggle room. And I could see him wanting to take
2: a full shot in the spring when he is not a freshman who just got here mm-hmm. in January <laughs> with the, in the, the embers of a pandemic still in place. So like that, that could be very possible, but then, um, then again, they probably would have to adjust right. If Kyle left in the summer, that's point when you might be going to the portal to get your third guy
1: or yeah, whatever. So I think a borough conversation has to happen at the end of the spring though. Right. Like you have to give him sort of that framework, even if, and let him choose what he wants to do with it. I mean, I do think, I do think
2: the guy who feels like he's third after the spring might not say right. That it's not even about, did you win? It's that, am I the backup? And that, that if, if, if you think, well, Stroud, Stroud's not going anywhere. He's the starter. And then it's cord versus Ewers. Are we, you know, that that could that could be a thing. Now, if it's viewers, i viewers mean, that say, well, I'll just sit CJ. Yeah. But if viewers <laughs> is third, but if viewers is third, because that's the thing. If viewers is like, if they're like, man, Kyle, what is up? You learned so much by playing in the fall and you started against Akron and the good things and the bad things that you did. Wow. He looks like a new quarterback. Kyle practically won the job from CJ and Quinn's And then it's like, well, okay. well, CJ is going to if CJ leaves after 22 and Quinn's like, okay. but it's like, well, I'm not even I'm behind the guy who's the five star in my same class. That's the thing. Right. I I do think maybe the number three guy after the spring wouldn't stay for the fall. Yeah, I don't know. He assumes he's number two for the next year.
1: Right. Yeah, but I, I also still think it's I know it's accurate to say five star in the same class. But that's it's also <laughs> it's yeah, that's also not the way I look at it.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think it matters where if Quinn is two or three, because like it, it just doesn't matter. It matters for Kyle has to be the starter or he's out. Quinn, can it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, he's going to be number two because if CJ loses the job, he's not going to stick around.
1: If you okay,
2: always, I'll just, thought- I'll just assume then that everything works out perfectly in the quarterback room, exactly as Ryan Day planned it. And they'll recruit the best quarterback <laughs> in the country every year. And they'll all be happy and leave in the perfect order of transfer that pleases everyone. I'll just assume that then.
1: All I'm saying is that if you thought that Commonwealth would come here in 2022 and there was a three year clock, it perfect. hasn't even started yet. Ideal.
2: I agree. <laughs> Couldn't be better. Everything's coming up roses. The Buckeyes are right on track. Best team in the country
1: 2023. Here we go.
2: Let's just was, make this this second podcast of that. Let's just jump right to that.
1: I was watching an old SNL clip of uh, Matthew Perry hosted one time and he was uh this is when he was doing Chandler on Friends, and uh he was kind of playing off of that character and doing teaching a class about sarcasm where like the, the like everybody in the class would like like rip on each other with some kind of dig, and then he'd be like, Oh, Good job that points for that. This is what we're happening. This is what's happening right now,
2: by the way, Steven, did you get that package I sent in the mail to you? The, the buzzer I sent you that you could hit whenever we fall into middle-aged white guy conversation. Do you, oh, want, to hit, yeah. you want to hit that?
0: <laughs> I'm like pounding it right now. You hit the
2: buzzer. But yeah. Matthew, Matthew <laughs> Perry was Chandler on friends when you were in, in preschool. So if that's, yes. I think friends
0: if that is helped. a little, is pretty universal, <laughs> right? I will. I will say that it's on HBO Max, and I tried it, and it. I mean, it's okay. I don't know what the, the hoopla was about it, but it's okay. It's it, it's I, like living single, but with I, all twenty year old white people.
1: I, I'm definitely not advocating that people go watch Friends. I'm yeah. stopping well short of that. I was just using an example <laughs> of a, a thing that just rolled through my timeline in the past twenty four hours to 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 to. to uh, Give some perspective on what uh, Professor Lamer East was giving us right there.
2: I will say, I will say, among the many, many, many low moments in my time covering Ohio State, and there have been many, perhaps my lowest, perhaps, is when Dwayne Haskins wore a friend's sweatshirt to interviews, and I asked him who his favorite oh, friend yeah. was. Oh, yeah. And he <laughs> stared through me like I was a hundred-year-old skeleton. Could you be older and whiter and lamer is the answer he gave with his eyes. He's like special. It's just a sweatshirt from a store. Old man, please stop bothering me. That's what he thought. He was kind enough and nice enough not to say it. But I was like, "Ooh, are you a Ross guy or a Joey guy? No, he said, please stop talking to me.
1: No, no, no. Like, I feel like if he had worn a sweatshirt that said like Adidas or Nike on, you were like, oh, what do you love about Adidas or Nike? He could have said. I don't know. It's just a shirt like it's just that's just made the shirt But when it's got the Friends cast on it. That's a reason. No, no, it's question. just it's the
2: Friends logo. Steven, you have that sweatshirt. I do. I do. So it's just like it's just it's, a cool. It's, it's just like, a cool logo. Perhaps oh, okay. almost like not ironic, but still but just like,
0: hey, the 90s happened. Yeah. Here's like a sweatshirt. The story- he probably got that from a store where there's a lot of sweatshirts and shirts that have like graphics on it. It was like stuff from the nineties. It just yeah. has like the logo or like still shots of screens. It doesn't mean we know anything about the show or anything. It's just, we like the shirt. And they don't make
2: you, they don't make you take a quiz to buy. The sweatshirt. <laughs> yeah. They're not like who, what was the name of Phoebe's sister? Uh, that would be Ursula. Congratulations, Dwayne. You may buy the sweatshirt.
1: All I'm saying is if I show up to a place where people ask questions for a living, And I'm wearing a um, Jonas Brothers sweatshirt, which I never would. If I were wearing a Jonas Brothers sweatshirt, I would expect... I can't be offended when someone asks me what my favorite Jonas Brothers song
0: is. Yeah, but it's like after practice, I think it was like 6.30 at night. uh, He just threw on a sweatshirt after getting in the shower to come talk to us. And I'm pretty sure he just wants to go home.
2: But also, by the way, I would wear a Jonas Brothers sweatshirt. And I could answer that question. Probably give me a heart attack. That's why I Underrated song. But... Quarterbacks. I do think, but also generationally, Stephen, young people today, do you not sort of, again, somewhat semi-ironically slash it's just a logo slash. Yes, Just I don't have to love something with all of my being to wear a sweatshirt about. it.
0: Yes, there are so many sweatshirts and T-shirts in my closet right now with that exact mindset.
2: Yeah, it's the young people. I only wear sweatshirts, Nathan, and maybe this is our generation. <laughs> I only wear sweatshirts. I only wear Disney World sweatshirts. It's like if someone said, oh, hey, nice Disney World sweatshirt. What's your favorite area in the Magic Kingdom? I'd be like, do you want a 90-minute answer to that question? But you I could give one. No, I know. But that's, that's our generation. It's like, well, why yeah. would I wear a sweatshirt of a thing that I don't personally love with every fiber of my being? And maybe perhaps the younger generation is like, can I wear a sweatshirt, old man? Without getting interrogated, yeah. it's just a generational.
1: Well, you know who doesn't wear sweaters is Lincoln Riley because he has been coaching in Oklahoma for a while where it's warm and he's moving where it's also warm. He is now the new head coach at USC. Steven, we uh, both uh, did some texting and, and posting about this yesterday, but just some perspective. Um, we know what the greater perspective is, that there's going to be Oklahoma recruits that follow Lincoln Riley to USC what is the Ohio State perspective on this? Because Ohio State's been trying to live in California a little bit. Um, any, and, and I guess try to get as specific as you can about any guys that are uh, on the line right now that this might affect.
0: So let's start with the immediate because that's what's most important since we're talking about quarterbacks and sweatshirts and all that fun stuff. Devin Brown, the number 59 player, the number five quarterback, has basically emerged as the candidate to, quote, unquote, replace Quinn Ewers in the 2022 recruiting class as its quarterback because they still want to bring one in every single year. And he decommitted from USC, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday um, and he basically said in the graphic, the reason why he decommitted is USC doesn't have a coach and I don't know who the coach is going to be. And that would be irresponsible for me to sign on signing day, not knowing who he is. Well, he knows who the coach is now. And USC is still in consideration along with Texas and Ole Miss. And obviously he he was on Ohio State's campus two weeks ago for the Michigan State game. And so he watched C.J. Stroud basically take first place in the Heisman. And then he probably watched on TV C.J. Stroud lose first place in the Heisman. But that that's now interesting in a world where he, him, uh, Damani Jackson, the number one cornerback in the class, they decommitted because there was no USC coach. Does the the Lincoln Riley effect bring all those guys back into the fold as we get closer to signing day for this 2022 recruiting class? So that's the immediate. Does Lincoln Riley come in and steal Ohio State's quarterback? Basically, long term, it's obviously Chris Olave, Wyatt Davis, uh, Court Williams. You know, Ohio State hasn't been in California a lot But they've hit every time they've gone, whether it's a five star top 50 recruit or it's a hidden gem like Chris Olave. Michael Thomas is from California. CJ Stroud, their starting quarterback is from California. So but when you bring in a guy like Lincoln Riley, who is, I guess, the only other guy we consider to be a quarterback whisperer with the recruits, he was getting at Oklahoma and you take that fertile recruiting ground that is California, maybe that wall is starting to go up. And Nathan, you and I actually did a pod in the spring of. If Texas puts this wall up, if USC puts its wall up, where does Ohio State go next? And we ran off a list of schools like Florida, Tennessee, Virginia. I think Ohio State's going to have to start considering some of those places because long term, Ohio State's probably not going to be able to just go in there and pick and choose who they want out of California. Now there's anybody else in the country.
2: I think it also makes it harder for anybody on the West Coast. I think this could have an effect mm-hmm. on the next JT Twimaloa. I think it has an effect on the next Emeket Buka there's nowhere on the West coast for guys out there to go to win a national championship. And if Lincoln Riley does, they're going to Lincoln Riley, is, it's going to be assumed that's what USC yeah. is going to be back to now from a recruiting standpoint. So, you know, if, if a Egg Buka is the next guy from Seattle, whose parents want to go down the coast instead of across the country to watch their son play that mm-hmm. matters. And it's been this situation where, again, the next time there's CJ Stroud, T.J. Uyungle and Bryce Young, all in Southern California, USC is not going to go 0-3 on that. So then mm-hmm. that means that either Bama, Clemson, or Ohio State wouldn't have their young quarterback from that part of the country. So, um, But as you guys discussed, they just go then where the next opening is, right? Texas is still a mess, so that doesn't seem like – I mean, Sark had an awful year. Is Billy Napier at Florida going to completely change the fortunes there? LSU doesn't have a coach right now. And and Cocho was huge in that state. Maybe there's openings in, in Louisiana now. So they'll just have to go. But this might be the end of this, like, five- or six-year window, right, where the West Coast was open for business. And Ohio State, among others, Bama, Clemson, everybody, Georgia, Kendall Milton, mm-hmm. right, West Coast kid that Ohio State was in on as a running back, picks Georgia, never really thought about the West Coast because there was no national title to win with the team there. I think the West Coast might not be open for business anymore for the for the five stars who now have a place to go.
1: The other way that this affects Ohio State is we have talked about the tiers of college football, Ohio State being in that upper tier with Alabama Clemson. And that obviously has gotten stirred up a little bit the way the season's played out. But in those discussions, it was always when is USC and or Texas and or whoever else, there's there may be some other candidates, French candidates, going to get A their Florida guy. Team. A Florida, Florida. team, Florida, Florida being maybe the most likely, the or teams, even Florida yeah. State. Florida yeah, State, yeah. But when is one of those guys? When is one of those schools going to get the guy that pushes them back up to the top tier? And I mean, I was listening to the Yahoo podcast last night, and one of them equated this. It might have been Thamel equated this to <clears throat> when Ohio State hired Urban Meyer. That the mm-hmm. Big Ten felt a little bit, was sagging a little bit overall and needed something like that, needed Ohio State to kind of rise and maybe pull the rest of the league along with it. And this seems like that sort of deal. Lincoln Riley's not Urban Meyer, but at the same time, at least he isn't yet, but at the same time, nobody in anywhere can think of the last time a coach of this prominence left one school of prominence directly
0: for another one. And I think, yeah, they're literally going to be Ohio State of the West. And I don't even know if Texas can be that because they're going to the SEC. So they're going to have to fight in that every single year. Now they're going to have to get to Bama and Georgia and LSU. Eventually, if they get it together, oh, USC has to fight Oregon. And that's pretty much it. And long term, when the Urban Meyer era, long term, they had to fight Penn State. And that was kind of it. And yeah, they had a couple of bumps along the way, but it's like there's one, you know, kind of tier two team that's kind of in your way and you you have to play hard. But then other than that, you just become the team that everybody just expects to come out and be the representative for your conference in the playoff every single year. So it's it's almost, Lincoln Riley looked at Oklahoma going to the SEC and said, nope, I'm going to go over here to USC where you know there's going to be a million top 100 recruits every single year. And I'm going to have the quarterback of the picking every single year and he just has to be – I only he has to be Urban Meyer's mentality. He didn't have to have that. He just has to be a little bit Hollywood because he's in L.A. So he's got to keep up with the Rams and the Lakers and the Clippers and the Chargers and just bring, put butts in seats and then win football games.
2: I also want to credit Lincoln Riley for the genius maneuver of taking a team that a lot of people thought might win a national championship in a chaotic yes. season and driving it off a cliff with a huge – 13 week stretch of embarrassing underachievement to set himself up for the USC job. So thank goodness that he didn't like make the playoff with this team when there was an absolute opportunity to do it. So just next level chess instead of checkers kind of thinking we thought, Hey, Lincoln Riley might try to win the national title at the school where he currently coaches. And he's like, nah, I'm going to suck. I'm going to tell Alex Grinch to suck even more than usual. And then right after we lose our rivalry game, 20 and a half hours later, Grackford from USC, boom, next level thinking, take that, America. Lincoln
1: Riley, always two steps ahead.
0: And Grinch, you're coming with me. Yep,
1: Can't wait. Yeah, we're about to, again, make Ohio State fans probably not feel that great, but I just want to give some perspective. Losing your rivalry game stinks. Losing your rivalry game, for your second loss that knocks you out of any playoff contention and, and conference championship contention, and then having your coach say, I'm definitely not taking this specific job that I'm asked about after the game. And then 24 hours later, leaving for a different job. That that's a worse weekend. Oklahoma had a worse weekend than Ohio state. I think. That is correct. Their national championship aspirations were not as um, realistic as Ohio state's this year. But that's still a when,
2: week when, weekend. when, when, when were they not as realistic? This
1: week as by this by week. Now, yes. By, by oh, last okay. Preseason, they were as realistic <laughs> oh, yeah. as they got. Absolutely. Okay. I'm yeah, just yeah. saying like going into this past week, I don't feel like they had as much immediately to gain by just winning. They still had to have some other things happen ahead of them in order for them to get back in to that top four. Ohio state was number two seed and yeah. whoops. All right. So let's get into that. We like I said, today's podcast, we're going to get into the Ohio State defense. What went wrong on the defensive side of the ball, Tuesday's pod will be a closer look at the offense. Right off the top, I just wanted to ask you guys, when you rewatch this, as, as bad as you thought or worse than you thought? I think those are probably the only two choices. <laughs> no, they're not. Really? They are not
2: the only two choices. I've changed my mind on whose fault this was. Ryan Day lost this game. The offense lost this game. The defense yeah. was fine. The defense was fine for the first half. Michigan wasn't Mm -hmm. dominating them in the first half and Ohio state's offense did nothing. And Ohio state lost the game offensively on the third and two call with Trevion Henderson to open Mm -hmm. the second half. And then the defense over the course of the second half got worn down. But I, I am not as much. And I think, I mean, it's, we reacted, I think afterward, like everybody in the country was reacting, but uh, I know when you look, I had the numbers first half stats compared to second half stats for this Ohio State offense. Um, They gave up up 226 yards on 37 plays in the first half and 261 yards on 24 plays in the second half. So they gave up 6.1 yards per play in the first half, 10.9 in the second half. Running the ball, Michigan ran it 21 times for 106 in the first half, five yards per carry. They gave up uh, 191 rushing yards on 20 carries, 9.6 yards in the second half. It was 14-13 at the half. They mm-hmm. were right there. And if this offense had done what it was supposed to do, this high-flying, mm-hmm. can't-stop-anybody offense, the idea that the idea that Michigan's offense put pressure on Ohio State the entire game and the offense just couldn't keep up is not right. The defense was actually like kind of okay. Now, I have plays marked down where let's talk about how every single person on the Ohio State defense got blocked on a single play, and it looked like they'd never learned in their lives how to get off a block. There's some of that. They were not getting steamrolled. They were not. They were not in a position where it was like, well, this is hopeless. They had a stretch where they made like eight straight good defensive plays in the second quarter. Michigan didn't do anything in the second quarter, really. Like eight straight good defensive plays, and then they gave up a third down and it got rolling again. There was absolutely an opportunity for this Ohio State offense to take control of this game, and it did not do it. And we'll get into that on the Tuesday podcast. But I do not think the answer is, is it bad or is it worse? I absolutely came away thinking it was not as bad defensively. And this is much more about the ineffectiveness of the Ohio State offense when this was still a game.
0: Um, wholeheartedly agree with that. And I, I said that during the Oregon game too. That's why the offense lost the Oregon game, not the defense. I think the same thing here. But with that being said, there are a lot of players on this defense who are not very good whether it's cuz they couldn't get off blocks or like their instincts are just not there.
2: And I do think once Michigan got rolling in the second half to cut their heart out, you saw guys I thought defensively who didn't want didn't want a piece of that anymore. None of it. And I thought Denzel Burke had a very bad game.
0: I, but I thought he had, go ahead, go ahead and finish.
2: No, but but like but not but it wasn't like I mean, the Bryson Shaw pick was actually a pretty big stinking deal, and again, like this wasn't this was entirely a game for the whole first half. It's a one point game in mm-hmm. the half, so'll we'll, we'll dive into this stuff, but go ahead, Stephen. yeah.
0: yeah, I don't think anybody wanted to smoke the entire second half. Correct. And some of that is play. Some of that is like you know, I, I hope we get into it. It's the Cam Brown situation where it's, I think I said this during the game, like why is nobody helping him because he's basically taking on Michigan's entire team by himself, and everybody's just kind of standing around looking as if, like, that's not happening and not defending their guy. Um, Guys didn't – guys, there were times when there were holes there and guys picked the right hole and they just did not attack it and go try to mess anything up. I agree. I think Denzel Burke did not have a good game, and I think it's because Michigan made him tackle early on, and so now he's, you know, feeling it a little bit. Yeah, this was – the defense was awful, and it still was not the reason the, the Ohio State lost this game.
1: Well, I think okay. I'm glad you said that because I was getting, I was wondering. I, I agree with everything you guys are saying about the offense uh, not being effective enough. But the way the Michigan dominated that second half w- happened from the start of the second half. Like they took over that game right away in the second half. It wasn't just Ohio State getting worn down late. They they, they averaged a first down on every first down throughout the second half. Um, and So I still think I would lean towards the defense being the reason Ohio State lost this game. That if they are able to interrupt Michigan at all in the second half and give the offense more opportunities, I know what you're saying that, yes, the offense wasn't as effective as normal. It was playing a better team than normal. And I think you've got to give the offense more chances to do what it does. And they couldn't do that. They couldn't get off the field in the entire second half.
2: But again, that first drive—I don't want to. We don't. I already took us too far to the offense. I mean, they came. They got the ball first in the second half and did nothing on the first drive. That was an incredibly huge first drive. And then they hit them. I thought their best play of the game was the quorum run on the second play of the second half because I thought they they got. So there's 10 defensive play, right? They blocked. I have it written down. They blocked everybody. Every single Ohio State defender got blocked on that play. And it left Bryson Shaw versus Blake Corum. And it wasn't close. But one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight guys got clearly blocked. Blocked. Ronnie Hickman was the ninth guy. He followed the tight end out into the flat and was out of the play. Cam Brown was the wide corner on the other side and was out of the play. And it left into Bryson Shaw. That was like perfect offensive execution. And and an Ohio State defense where nobody in that moment knew how to make a play. Nobody knew how to shed their block. Nobody knew how to do. And then Coram runs. And then I thought that Play started the momentum. That was the beginning of feeling like they can't stop these guys. But until that moment, again, it was the second play in the second half. So if your argument, Nathan, is like the whole second half, they did it. They didn't come out in the second half on that first drive, for example, Ohio State did nothing and go six yards, seven yards, four yards, five yards, two yards, three yards, six yards. Like three they had, they had, they busted a big play. And then I thought that cut their heart out a little bit and they couldn't get a stop when they needed it. But I thought that quorum play was the game changer because up until then, again, that's 13 minutes in, the, the first 32 minutes of the game, I do not think it was what it felt like then afterward because those first 32 minutes was not, even there's this story that John Madden texted Jim Harbaugh and said that was the best offensive line play I ever saw. That was not true for the first 32 minutes. It was good, right? But they were not absolutely dominating every single snap. But then after the Quorum run, they started to do that.
0: I agree that that maybe started the avalanche, but I think the plays, the 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 two plays that killed Ohio State are because they didn't have a lot of big plays as you talked about. That was just like somebody missed a tackle. Somebody they had a perfect blocking scheme and Blake Quorum run it. I think Michigan played this game like a conservative fire that knew eventually it was going to have to throw a haymaker if it really wanted to win, and it did it a couple of times in the first half. Even the pick K McNamara had. That's a great that's a great time to call that play. He just read it wrong. There's somebody wide open going down the sideline for a touchdown. They threw back-to-back hay- haymakers. They're up 21-13. to 13. They, bring Cade Mac- they bring J.J. McCarthy in, and he hit somebody for a 31-yarder, and then they follow that up with the fleet flicker with Cade McNamara, and he hit somebody for a 34-yarder, and now they're in the red zone, and now they're feeling themselves because now they've hit, they've hit Ohio State twice in the mouth, and Ohio State's back on his heels, and then they go down there and score. I think that's when they lost the game, when all of a sudden Michigan wasn't just sticking to the let's be conservative, let's just punch him, punch and punch them in the middle. No, we're going over their heads now.
2: No, they definitely hit some throws. I mean, they hit another big throw, uh, Denzel Burke on um, who's that number six guy, the perfect, like the Mac like he caught yeah. at the one yard line and skid into the end zone. Mm-hmm. Burke n- didn't get the hands on the guy off the release. It was one on one and they made a perfect throw. They did hit a couple of those haymakers, but I thought, to your point, Steven, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but those plays came after those were yeah, like it all I, came thought
0: after the, I
2: thought the quorum shot was the time when maybe it didn't knock Ohio State down, but it stunned them. And Mm -hmm. then I thought that's when Michigan started stepping forward and was like, oh, man, we just – and then they start throwing – and then they got a couple knockdowns after that. But, yeah, there were moments – and, again, again, it's not – here we're talking about this. They did absolutely run on them and cut their heart out. But 50-yard-plus quorum run – the McCarthy throw against the zone, perfect, terrible zone coverage, no pressure. The throw you're talking about, Steven. Flea flicker after that, great design. Marcus Williamson gets sucked up. The guy runs right by him, wide open on that. The, the Burke, uh, you know, giving up that one on one throw that we're talking about, those aren't offensive line. Like the, the quorum run was, was that, okay? Mm-hmm. But again, the idea that like Michigan just came out and pounded it time after time after time, those were like the finishing blows. They did hit sort of multiple shots in both the run game and pass game that that really sort of determined this game. And like Ohio State didn't do enough of that, right, offensively. Like in comparison, it's like if we're saying, oh, well, you know, it's like, well, where's Ohio State's 55-yard run? Where's Ohio State's flea flicker okay. for a 30-yard? I mean, Garrett Wilson had the amazing catch, but how many of those did the Ohio State offense have? This is so I just, you could feel it happening, but it didn't happen from the jump. It really didn't. 14-13 at the half is not Michigan no. is taking this game over and
1: Ohio State can't do anything about it. And Michigan had the ball first to start the game. So you're, you're not even, I think, mm-hmm. even on possessions in the first half. So going in 14-13 at halftime was not a disaster. But the things were such a complete um there was such a complete absence of defense in that second half uh, an absence of any interruption that, you know, I, I, I covered a coach one time who would always talk about, you can't let the other guy get his head up. And I, I, that, I've always thought that that was a, a more, more analogous to basketball where I thought momentum and runs are more frequent, but I, but that play, you're talking about that quorum run, Michigan got its head up, I thought, and, you know, mm. instead of being up 14 mm-hmm. to 13 and and the inevitability of Ohio State. Now you've put yourself in – I mean, it took another then 13-yard run after that to get the touchdown, but still, now it's an eight-point game. You've got the crowd into it. Michigan had its head up at that point, and it never went back down. Let's take a break. We're going to come back and get into more specifics about this game here on Buckeye Talk. Doug, that 55-yard run by Blake Quorum that you're talking about, I think Ohio State could have had 12 guys on the field. And I don't know if he gets all 55 of those yards, but he gets a lot of them. And and as it was, if the guy wasn't coming off of a high ankle sprain, it's probably not just a 55 yard run. It's he maybe houses it. And we all through the season, ever since the Oregon game, the Oregon game happens and there are systemic failures, especially to stop the run. And it's always been hanging out there. How much has Ohio State improved as far as a team that can stop the run? how much were you guys reminded of the Oregon problems when you rewatched this game? Do you feel like there's a connection there or was Saturday, a completely different set of problems?
2: I thought it was similar again. I thought, and I thought Josh Ross, the Michigan linebacker was in the role of Noah Sewell, the Oregon linebacker of the guy on the other side that shows you what it can look like when you have guys at, at the linebacker spot who are making plays in the run game and that Ohio state's guys weren't doing that. And again, this is hard. Here's the thing. I feel like we should possibly delete every podcast we did all year, but you have to go by what you're seeing and context matters. And we try to take the context into account, but also you can't spend the whole year going, well, I know they won by 40, but I don't know. Well, I know this, team wasn't very good, but I stick like, they started to do some things better. And we just, we had what we had. Yeah, But the idea that Jim Harbaugh thought they could do this, right, kind of watching Ohio State this year, and it never got tested. Let me – can I run through the play real quick? Absolutely. yeah. Go ahead. So this is the quorum run. Zach Harrison at defensive end gets blocked by the left tackle, right in front of him. Jerron Cage gets blocked by the center. Jerron Vincent gets blocked by the right tackle, who comes across and takes him out. And Tyreek Smith at the other defensive end spot gets held by the read on the plate that he's on the outside end and he gets held by the read that leaves the linebackers Corey Simon gets blocked by the left guard who gets to the second level. No problems. Steel chambers gets blocked by the right guard who gets to the second level. No problems. Lathan ransom is the cover safety. He gets blocked by a wide receiver. No problems out of the play. And then Denzel Burke, who's on the side that Corm ends up running to gets knocked, I think on his butt by Roman Wilson, nothing. Like this doesn't just like does not look like a guy who wants to have to tackle. This was a little bit of a Deion Sanders game for Denzel Burke. His PFF grade is in the forties. He did not look like a guy who wanted to play in the snow and tackle in the run game. And then by the way, he got thrown on. He had a horrible, not horrible, but a very costly pass interference penalty. And he got beat one-on-one down the field. So when he had his opportunities to do the thing he likes to do, he didn't do them, but he did not, as you said, None of the smoke, Steven. He would, um. there were not like none, none. So, and then Rodney Hickman falls the tight end wide cam Brown's off the other side. And that just leaves Bryson Shaw and Bryson Shaw is not in the middle of the field. He's a little offset. And when Corum kind of swoops across Shaw is late to it and that's it. And when you have a play hit like that, sometimes it makes it look like, well, how do teams not run for 50 yards on every play? All they did was block every single defensive player and it was perfect. And so it's easier said than done. You don't do that every play. You do it once or twice a game if you're lucky. But on that play, Ohio State looked very, very blockable. And there wasn't anybody who came close to making a play on that. And then you go back to it again and you start running through the names and it's like, who do we think was gonna make a play there? Exactly, of all the guys we just read, who's gonna save them there? Uh, who's your candidate? I don't know. There's no Josh Ross. There's no Noah Sewell. There's no Penn State linebackers. There's nobody.
1: So here we are. And and Josh Proctor doesn't like save that play in some way if he's still on his team. For everyone who who wants to to rip on Bryson and Chao, well, actually I thought among the defenders played well. pretty well on Saturday. Uh, though yeah. that's that's relative. Um, that that guy's not fixing that. I, I think you're right, Doug. There was I, I would even go to the play before that, the first play of that drive. Here's my thing too, when you're comparing this to the Oregon situation, because Ohio State didn't know a lot about Oregon. You're two games in, you have a different like set of data that you're building off of, that you're presenting your game plan off of. Ohio State didn't know as much about itself at that point either. So now 10 weeks later, you have an entire season of Michigan doing exactly what it came out and did on Saturday. I'm sure there were wrinkles there as far as play calling, but the identity is the same. And you think that you have established your defense. And then the first play of the second half, Michigan comes out double tight to the right and then runs the ball to the right. So again, not reinventing the wheel here. Lathan Ransom gets immediately thrown down at the line of scrimmage. And Cody Simon gets just a momentary pause, right? It's just like he bounces in place for just a moment and it's over. That's a 13-yard gain. Because there's nobody – there are no linebackers involved in that play. And, and there were – Bur- Denzel
2: Burke was out there almost looking like, please, someone block me. I don't really want to have to make this tackle. That, yeah, and, and that's the
1: problem. And there were – I just the, felt like there were multiple plays where there were no linebackers involved in – like anywhere near the ball. Like like what what is a linebacker's job, right? Like you're supposed to be leading that swarm to the ball, if, if nothing else. This was maybe the game where I thought that they missed the – Werner Malik Harrison uh presence the most, like the guy who just goes and gets it. Like that was not there for this defense.
0: Gary Cole basically said six weeks ago, Steel Chambers. He sees and he goes. He doesn't always see it right, but he's gonna go. He didn't go at all. Him and Cody Simon all day bouncing up and down, kind of late to everything. No one just like jumped the snap or just went before a lot somebody could even get to them before somebody could get their hands on them and just beat somebody to a hole and just said no not this play we're going to stop at this time even if the hole was there for them to do it they kept waiting on the running backs to come to them and if you wait on a running back to come to you by then he's already going downhill and of course you have missed tackles by then plus this team can't tackle to save its life
2: at all they looking at the pff grades again and it's just it's just the guys. So de- on the on the back end, Denzel Burke and Cam Brown at corner played every snap. Bryson Shaw and Ronnie Hickman at safety played every snap. Steel Chambers played every snap, but two. So that's like five. And then Cody Simon almost played the whole game. So like, those are your guys. Like, those are your like second level of defense. Once you get past the defensive line that you're putting out there to shut down this Michigan running attack. And like, how do you feel about that? Hearing those names? Like, it's just like average. So here we are. And it, and it's just, I thought so, but there was this eight play stretch in the middle of the second quarter where at the end of a drive, they got three stops to end the drive and then they came out. So, okay. Michigan got a first down um, on a throw, on a third and two. It was first and 10. Cody Simon gets in the hole on first and 10. Uh, Ronnie Hickman's kind of up in the box. They make a good play, and it works. Uh, The next play, Steel Chambers makes a nice play. And then the third play, uh, Steel Chambers' blitz is on third down and forces an incompletion. So it's not a three and out, but those are the last three plays of a drive to force a punt, right? So it's three good defensive plays strung together. It wasn't any Superman stuff, but it was like a linebacker in a hole on first down made a difference. Pretty good play on second down. Then a blitz made a difference on third down. So then they come back out. Michigan gets the ball again. First down, Steel Chambers right in the hole. Makes a tackle. Good. Second down, Haskell Garrett and Zach Harrison penetrate on the defensive line, kind of blow up the run game a little bit. And then third down, Tyreek Smith, they force him to throw. Tyreek Smith gets a little pressure. They miss a throw down the sideline, right? So that's a three and out. So that's six straight good defensive plays. Then they come out again. Uh, Lathan Ransom and Cody Simon blitz on first down, an incompletion. Second down, there's no pressure. They throw a little ball to the tight end and gain seven. Now it's third and three. That's eight straight pretty effective defensive plays. And then on third and three, they only run a four-man pressure, and McNamara hits one of those little sidearm slants right mm-hmm. in the middle of a zone between Steel Chambers, Tommy Eichenberg, and Denzel Burke, and then they're kind of off and rolling. But here's my point. there were, It was a moment, it was a stretch of good defense, and it wasn't, it wasn't guys jumping over fullbacks and making one-handed tackles. Like, it was just good, solid linebackers in a hole, a little penetration from the defensive line that was a reminder of, they. you don't have to be Superman to stop that Michigan offense. You just can't get blown off the ball. You can't let them move the line of scrimmage every snap. And you can't have linebackers in the wrong gaps and getting, black, getting blocked and not getting off blocks. Because for a moment, they did it, and then they didn't do it again. But it almost makes it worse, Nathan, that they did show how to do it, and then it was like, and that was it
1: it never well, happened. And and again I mentioned this on the pod afterwards, but Bryce and Shaw came in and said like, you know, we thought we were in a good place. We went in and we made adjustments at halftime to stop the run. And that that's almost the biggest indictment that they went in and thought that they had gained something up and then Michigan just ran the ball down their throats. But my outrageous prediction for this game, or not my outrageous prediction, my game time decision was to watch what Michigan can do on first down. Because if Michigan has success on early downs, that's going to potentially not only is it going to just keep them on the field longer, it's going to take away one of Ohio state's bigger weapons, which is the pass rush, because you're not putting yourself in those uh, advantageous situations for the defense on later downs. The first half, Michigan was pretty ordinary on first down plays they ran 17 first down plays. And those events resulted in, in 75 yards, 12 carries for 51 yards. So not even barely over four yards a carry, which is pe- pedestrian at the college level, I think. And then on first down passes in the first half, one of five for with an interception at 124-yard completion. They were not a threat on first down in the first half and Ohio State, and that's why they only get, you know, 14 points instead of more. And that's why the second half was the exact opposite. Michigan just completely dominated the second half and, um, and was on schedule. You know, they, they use that cliche all the time, but was just on schedule consistently throughout the second half.
2: And listen, who am I as a lame old 48-year-old guy to like question the want to of twenty-eight 20-year-old college football defense? No, nah, no, this is but, the game to do it though. But Steven, like once it got rolling for Michigan in the second half, they did the defense. I think once they got behind the eight ball, once some things went wrong, it didn't look like they had that gumption, dog. that dog in them that that a lot of great defenses have that we have seen Ohio state have a lot over the years that we know what that looks like. It, I'm not saying they didn't, I don't want to say they quit. They didn't quit, but it felt like you could tell they were getting frustrated. Michigan got in control of that game and nobody rose up to say like, Hey, like enough is enough. And as you said, like Cam Brown winds up in this thing and like, I don't know, it doesn't, it looked, it ended up, if that was, Could have been a jump start. Instead, it looked like they're getting frustrated. They don't know what to do. It wasn't a rallying cry at all. And that I think for Ohio state fans, they're not used to seeing that in this game.
0: And we've seen stuff like that become that. And especially in this game, David Boston and Charles Woodson get into a fist fight on the field. Bradley Roby gets into a fist fight. A guy gets kicked out of the game and he's flicking off the Michigan crowd. We've seen this stuff all the time. So, as crazy as it looked in the moment with what cam brown was doing this is a rivalry game man stuff like that's going to happen every single time and maybe some of it is you had so many guys in this game who'd never played in it and so they just weren't used to what this type of intensity is but yeah they got punched in the mouth like two or three times in a row and said i'm out i'm waving the white flag you just here just block me here you can have it you can have it you can have it and it was on both sides of the ball even though right now we're talking about defense
1: I was talking, my wife and I talking to one of her uh, family friends yesterday who happens to be an Ohio State grad. And uh, she said, did you feel like, you know, the officials, they were just, you know, they had it in for them and or that they were just, you know, seem like they were, you know, making calls toward Michigan. I'm like, well, you know, it's part of playing on the road. You know, you, you don't get the calls and you don't always get the same, you know, penalties don't always go your way, whatever. But, but no, like they just kicked their butt. Like that second half, they just kicked their butt. I wanted to, to delve into the – you brought up the PFF grades, Doug. And this I thought was interesting. I don't know if you guys saw this. Um, re- reading numbers on a podcast is always thrilling, but bear with me for a moment. So I'm going to read off a list of numbers. 84, 82, 70, And by, by the way, uh, uh, g- any grade in the 90s for people who aren't familiar is good on PFF. It's, it's a 1 to 100 scale. So when you're up in the 90s, that's good. Like Aiden Hutchinson's been in the 90s for the whole season. And when you're down the 40s, like Denzel Burke was, that's terrible. So here's this list of numbers. 84, 82, 78, 77.9, 77, 73.4, 73.4, 71.1, 70.2. And there's several more guys who still have a green box next to them. That's Ohio State's tackling grades. And it's really everybody on the defense that played got a pretty good tackling grade for this game. But then here's the run defense scores, 71.6. That's the one that's in the 70s. That's the highest grade. It's the only one that's in the 70s, 67.2, 64, 60.4. So it it just pretty quickly gets down into that that yellowy area that you don't want to, you're not going to find success in. And so I bring that up just as Ryan Day is always talking about scheme and coaching and personnel and evaluating all three of those things. So when you evaluate the defense and when you hear something like that, that, Guys in position made tackles, but that second grade suggests to me that guys aren't in position. That's what I thought was similar to me from the Oregon game that, you know, okay, you made a tackle down like Bryson Shaw gets a good grade or whoever Ronnie Hickman gets a good grade for catching Blake Corum at the end of that 55 yard run. Okay, you made a good tackle there, but the first 54 yards of that are a bad grade for the entire defense. And I thought that 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 number kind of exemplified it to me.
2: Yeah, it's hard to know, right? I mean, sometimes it, if there's a hole and there's nobody in a gap, it's, well, did a guy go, is, he, is somebody not in the gap they're supposed to be in? Did they get blocked out of it? Was there actually, okay, well, we're going to cover this, we're going to cover that, and then that leaves that open. That, But I agree with that. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think the, the coaches didn't often have them in situations where it felt like for, for an offense that you kind of knew what they were going to do, and even though with the caveat, we pointed out like three or four big throws that they made, but that's still what they are. Run, 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 a couple big throws. For a fact that you kind of knew how they were going to go about it, it didn't feel like the Ohio State defense was first guessing what was coming. Right? Yeah. That like, oh, man, mm-hmm. they read that. They knew there was a guy right where they were trying to, to hit him. You know, it, that's not – the coaches didn't have them winning the chess game which would allow them
1: to make plays either. I, I agree with that. Steven, you and I were talking about, might have been at dinner, one of these plays. There were two plays in the first half that jumped out at me. There was a third and two play that went for a big game. It might have been the one on the first drive. Um, Ohio State had three guys in the middle of the field. Like Ronnie Hickman was lined up as one of like kind of just a standard mm-hmm. linebacker there on that play. But he, at, at the snap, like immediately just vacates the middle of the field. He follows, I think, a tight end or, or whoever out to the side. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it's only two guys in the middle and somebody gets blocked off and it it goes for a big chunk gain. And then the one we did talk about, there was, again, there were three gaps on the left side of the line and Hickman comes up and fills one and it was either Chambers or Simon fills the other one. And then Michigan just runs right through the middle one for another Mm -hmm. huge gain. It just seemed like, and and, in both of those cases, you had a defensive lineman who was sort of swiping at the guy from behind as he got through the line. Like in that case, it was Antoine Jackson was just like a hair late getting there uh, getting to the running back in the backfield. And Haskins goes for a a big gain up the middle. And I just thought that there were a lot of examples of that where something isn't being read correctly by that second level.
0: It's either something's not being read and somebody picked the wrong hole or the defensive line is just getting its butt whipped, because that's the that's almost the question that you ask the defensive coordinator. There is, hey, on this play, who's supposed to be making the tackle? Is it supposed to be Hickman? Is it supposed to be Chambers? Is it supposed to be the three tech, the one tech? Is it in supposed to beat this guy one on one, or is Bryson Shaw? Or, or is this, this just a play where you're okay giving up a six yard run because you think your free safety is going to erase the possible big play here? That's the problem. Is I don't know how much of it is. You know, I don't know if it's Michigan gave Hass- Hassan Haskins three holes to run through and he just picked the one nobody was there versus somebody didn't win their assignment or this is just what Ohio State's defense is designed to give up. So it's, it's hard to – I'm going to criticize it because, you know, Michigan beat them with it all day long, but it's, it's, it's almost – you want to ask Matt Barnes or Kerry Combs or whoever is running things over there, Al Washington, whoever, who was supposed to be making that, that tackle, who is supposed to be making that play, and why didn't that happen?
2: And they did not play three linebackers really very much at all. It was Hickman down in the box. And we've talked all year that Hickman has been very valuable for them because he can play safety, he can play linebacker, he can do all the things you ask of that position. But in a world where we saw them play three linebackers in the past, right? I mean, we said, hey, get rid of the single high safety, play two deep safeties. But they had that cover safety on the field, like the whole time. Marcus Williamson or Lathan Ransom was on the field basically the whole time. Craig Young, who we thought was developing a role at the end of the year, played six snaps snaps, and there wasn't, uh, you know, sometimes again, it's like, Oh, okay. Well, Cody Simon got blocked. Steel chambers got blocked. And then there wasn't another true run stopping linebacker on the field. Then it's like, Oh, and then Marcus Williamson or Lathan ransom or Ronnie Hickman, like didn't make the play. It's like, well, they're not, they're not linebacker bodies. So for a team again, that you knew was going to run it. And I don't, they didn't have three tight ends in the game the whole time or anything. They were still spreading you out a little bit, but like, that, that's like a, an adjustment that they didn't seem prepared to make. I, again, in a world where their whole linebacker room is is decimated, it's like, well, who would have been the third linebacker? I don't know. But we've seen them do that in the past, right? It's like, well, we play like this, but if you play a run-heavy team, then you have three linebackers in the game. They didn't have three linebackers in the game. And that would have been one extra guy that maybe would have gotten off a block in a way some of these smaller, lighter, more coverage-aligned guys maybe weren't doing
0: It's almost as if this team was beat the. It was kind of built to beat the national teams, where you know you're going to throw it, but it wasn't built necessarily to beat a bunch of running teams, which is why Oregon, Minnesota, and Michigan were able to do what they did on them.
2: And that's why we said, but we said, get rid of the single high safety because Trevor Lawrence is going to pick you apart. And yeah. so then it's like, oh, we got rid of the single high safety and then Michigan ran it down our throats. It's like, okay, well, yeah, it is almost, I mean, it's like, well, here's our big 10 defense and here's our NFL quarterback defense. And they kind of played their NFL quarterback defense against a big 10 running team. Mm-hmm. And the result was, we saw what happened in the second half.
1: But I also think that this might be further evidence that any team that they played, that had an offensive coordinator who could scheme something up was going to find vulnerabilities here. Maybe. And especially against Quite the true. run like yeah. that, that that's, it happened more, to, more than one time this year. Um, and you, but do, like, I'm just
2: trying to think, I'm just trying to think again, and it's not even. So say, say you play this because this is, it's, it's the whole thing. It's coaching and scheme and personnel. Say you play this game with a roster that includes Raquan McMillan, Joshua Perry, and Darren Lee. Right that you have the 2014 linebackers.
1: I don't think you even need all three.
2: Like, I, But but you would yeah. have played them in this game, right? Like you would have yeah. played, you those played three all three of them because, at the same time. Because yeah. Lee, Lee was a linebacker who could cover like a bullet, whatever. But yes. they wound up in a world where if we thought – Hickman was a safety who could play like a linebacker and young was a linebacker who could play like a safety. And maybe there's a matchup thing with who you play, what you do. They wound up in a world where Ronnie Hickman couldn't come off the field, but in the end, he's still a safety who plays like a linebacker out of that bullet position. It's not a linebacker body. It's not a, it's not a same degree of linebacker physicality. And again, Ronnie Hickman has been one of the best defensive players all year, but they didn't have that look. They didn't have that. Let's put a third guy in the box. Who's got a little something to him in the run game. And the result was, it felt like if they got chambers and Simon blocked, they were off to the races in a world where are you really on, on one hand? It's like, yeah, Cade McNamara made a couple good throws, but are you really worried that worried about Cade McNamara? It's like, well, we got to leave Lathan ransom or Marcus Williamson on the field. It's like, why? Put a linebacker in there. And then if that slot Mm -hmm. guy or that tight end or whatever it is beats that guy in coverage, fine. But they were like, were they a a guy short from personnel standpoint? Because we thought that might be Craig Young. Craig Young played sixth place.
1: I was going to say, I mean, especially because you did it the week before. You put, I mean, I know Craig Young's a bullet, but he's a linebacker at his foundation. And you you had him at cover safety last week. I was, that was maybe one of the more shocking things about this defensive setup was that I thought, after they did it against Michigan state. And I know Michigan state is uh, maybe even more dependent on the run and way, but not really, not really. And I I thought that they would come in with a, a a similar strategy. Like why, why wouldn't he get more of an opportunity? And I think that's a a question that a house state needs to answer. Um, If you took even one linebacker, if you took even like one of those guys I mentioned before, like if, if this team had still had Pete Werner, if this team had still had Malik Harrison, because Doug, you mentioned before, the, the, the linebacker room was was decimated. But in numbers, yes, but in not numbers. in terms of impact. Like, the guys who left and weren't playing at the end of the year weren't playing and weren't playing effectively. The only guys who played linebacker on Saturday were guys who had played linebacker effectively this season, and they didn't do it effectively on, on Saturday. And I, I just think if, if you take even one of those guys, I mean, maybe even like – um Justin Hilliard, like how much does Justin Hilliard help this team this year? The guy that you used as the fourth linebacker, could you, you could have just made him your Sam linebacker on Saturday. And how much does that change this game? So here, this is a thing.
2: I don't, I don't want to put this on a player because it's really more about a coaching thing. Is Taraji Mitchell healthy?
1: That's a good question. It's been a, a kind of a floating target with him, I think for most of the season.
2: Taraja Mitchell did not play, according to PFF, a defensive snap against Michigan State or Michigan. And Taraja Mitchell against Oregon in week two played the third most snaps on your defense. So he's a captain. He's a fourth-year guy who is a top 100 national recruit who's been waiting his turn all year. And in a game where you're getting run on, he doesn't see the field. So I, I don't know. Is, we, do, we, do we think he's hurt? Or do we think he just didn't play?
0: Um, did he play? I think he might have played special teams last week. Okay, so I'm not ruling out that he might not be healthy, but that is a
2: if you think, well, Kayvon Pope and Dallas Gantt, how good were they going to be? They transferred Neoteote, he's new. What's he going to do? I mean, Mitchell Melton, he might have helped you along the way. That is a whatever the cause is, whether it's injury or a lack of development that that's on, there's a a chunk of that's on Al Washington, right? And that there's something here that a guy who was this, you thought was going to be this was this early in the year does not play against Michigan state or Michigan at a position of need is a gigantic gaping hole in this defense.
1: I believe he's healthy enough to play because he had been going by our, our chums at 11 warriors, 11 snap. this is his last four games, 11 snaps, 10 snaps, special teams only, DNP. That was how he closed the season. He definitely yeah. was hurt at one point this year. It definitely was an, an injury situation for him. And at one point, Ryan Day was asked, why didn't he play more? But I think it was, it was one of those weird things. Like He was asked, like, did Haskell Garrett and Taraja Mitchell both not play more because of injury? And he sort of was like, yeah, something's going on there but it wasn't specific to Mitchell necessarily. And I mean, well, I guess we may never know at this point, but it clearly they didn't. I mean, they had Kate Stover played more linebacker snaps than Trojan Mitchell did on Saturday. Right. That is a devastating result for this defense. And I, I mean, I have it on the list of questions here and there are some big picture things we have to talk about, I think just in the course of this, but like it, the way you're kind of describing it, Doug, it's almost like they went into last year, thinking that there were veteran guys who were going to step up and be the answer in the secondary. And it did not happen. Like there were, it was, it was, and, and, and it exposed, you mean at linebacker uh, no, last year at, at, Oh, Oh, in the secondary, I'm making an analogy here. Yeah. I'm making an analogy here. And, and that was, that never got solved all season. And that deficiency sort of, again, for a national championship runner up, but sort of defined what that defense was in 2020. And I feel like a similar thing happened this year. I think they thought that this was going to just be the year where guys who had been waiting their turn step up, and now it's their turn to be, you know, take over that room. Or that there were some talented guys who were coming along, and it got them 10 wins, but it, it cost them in the two biggest games of the year. And it, it, it's worth asking, like as we, as we evaluate what's going on in the staff, like th- this wasn't a great year for Al Washington. I think
2: kind of from the well, we, start we to needed, We need to talk about staff stuff. But I mean, just imagine imagine if Chris Olave Ola- and Garrett Wilson leave, and it's like, okay, it's time for these guys behind them. And imagine mm-hmm. if if Ohio State next year gets to the Michigan game, and Emekek Buka and Julian Fleming are not playing. And it's like, why aren't they playing? And it's like, well, one of them transferred, and one of them's on the roster and just isn't good enough to play. And it would be like, what are you talking about? That's where they were, like, with this linebacker group. Like, you thought you had these guys who were next in line, and they're up next, and then... None of, them, none of them mattered at the end of the year, and it's devastating to the defense. I have an old man point about the defense too before we change to the staff, but go ahead, Steven.
0: No, I, you believed in them so much that you didn't recruit a lot of people behind them. You wouldn't got Cody. Simon. I mean, Mitchell Melton is also hurt. That's yeah. part of there's some of that depth, but you wouldn't got Cody Simon and Mitchell Melton one year, and you took uh, Cade Stover out the room and made him a def- defensive lineman, and then you made him a tight end, and then you only got Reed Carico last year. And some of that is you changed your scheme, and you only need two linebackers on the field at all times. But then also, it's just you did not go get the necessary numbers you needed for two straight classes that puts you in this position where we can ask the question: Why isn't Taraja Mitchell playing? When the guys behind them, they might be better, but they're not so much better that they're making that big of an impact in the most important game of the year.
2: So uh, they do think there is still a little bit of a recruiting hole in the linebacker room that is still some lingering Bill Davis yes. effect, but there's a development issue that lands on Al Washington because mm-hmm. there, there are not guys in this linebacker room who came along and got better in a significant way. But I do want to talk about the staff, but let, let me do my old man point. Of the num- of the 15 players on the defense who played the most snaps for Ohio state on Saturday, according to PFF, guess how many of them played high school football in Ohio. Out of
1: 15. Um... <laughs> four. I was going to say three. I was going yeah, to say
0: three <laughs>
2: because Marcus Williamson, I count as Ohio. Cause he, okay. yeah. so, okay. so four and none of the top six, none of the top six who in snaps. So, Old it's old man point.
0: Ah,
2: it's snowing. They're running on you. Half this roster has never played in this game before. The maze pom poms are going crazy. Man, these guys just they keep blocking you and blocking you. And how many of those guys in that moment in the second half when it's like, oh my god, this is hard. like it's hard, man. It's hard. How many of those guys had? The third grade, I hate these guys, reserve. How many of these guys had, man, you should have heard what my grandpa used to say about Michigan, reserve. How many of these guys had it in their blood? And it's an old man point. It is not in the top 10 list of reasons why Ohio State lost to Michigan. But I wanted to bring it up because not just as a player, not just as his skill level, God, this makes me sound old. But, like, what would have happened if Chris Spielman was on this defense? What would have happened if Joshua Perry was on this defense? What would have happened if guys who didn't just get taught the rivalry but had it in their blood are like, what are we doing? Let's go. I'm not saying not in the top ten, but – this was a defense that was lacking in almost everything. Personnel, scheme, and coaching. Really, truly, lacking in almost everything. And if if they try, if they were left as a last resort to go to their reserve, their gumption, I hate this guy, these guys with every fiber of my being, not because they made me take off my blue shirt on a recruiting trip, but because I've hated them since I was in preschool. There weren't a lot of guys on that defense who had that reserve.
0: And that is why it's so important that they lock down Ohio to start off every recruiting class, because to be completely honest with you, Jack Sawyer might be the only one who fits that description, because we heard from Zach Harrison this week and he didn't talk like a guy was like, Oh yeah, I hate it. Michigan. They were his top two schools. And he was just watching the game at the 2018 game at home, like a normal kid, Ty Hamilton was neutral. Ty Hamilton is, is not a five-star recruit. He might be really good here, but he is not a five-star recruit. Jack Sawyer was the number one player in the country when he committed to Ohio State three weeks into Ryan Day's tenure. He has hated Michigan his entire life, and you cannot be, ask a freshman co- defensive end who has been here for nine months to be that guy for you. That's not realistic.
1: I want to make another old man point. I'm not as old as Doug, but I'm, I'm pretty old. And I've talked before about how, I, how important I think it is that your best leaders play. Like you, leadership to me, guys on the sideline, guys in the locker room, that's important too. But you've got to have guys on the field who are backing up the way that they inspire you with their words, with how they inspire you with their play. Ohio State has three defensive captains. Zach Harrison played constantly on Saturday. We already talked about Taraja Mitchell didn't play at all. You know, who wasn't on the field to start the game, even after he got broke through and got that big tackle to start the game That's against cool. Michigan state was not on the field to start the second half, either Haskell Garrett, he played, but they started Tron Vincent and John cage for whatever reason, Larry Johnson had to start those guys and Michigan scored on the first drive of the game and the first drive of the second half.
2: It just felt like they had two lines and that yeah. Haskell Garrett was on the second line. and, and again, I don't know. Is like, were you trying to split up your best guys so you didn't have Tyreek, Zach, and Haskell all together? Because then you had Haskell in when JT and Javante Jean Baptiste were the defensive ends. I, I get I that. I, I a guess, little bit, I
0: get it. Yeah. Because Haskell is your leader in sacks. And if you don't feel, if, I mean, JT's not the greatest pass rusher yet because he's a freshman. And JJB is just not, he's not it. If so, somebody's got to be a dog on that second line. But the guy who's leading you in sacks on that line. Just like if you had Zach, just like in 2019, if Zach Harrison was on the field, Chase Young was probably out there with him to offset that. So I, I get it in theory, but in this game, maybe you worked your way to that, but I do think you probably want your best four guys out there to start the game, even if you know at some point Haskell's going to go with the second line to kind of raise that part, that second unit ceiling.
1: Anything else you guys want to get into as far as? specific X's and O's. Cause I think there's some big picture stuff to talk about here in the third segment.
2: Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think we're good. I mean, I think you got to credit, um, Josh Gaddis for a pretty darn good plan of attack. Um, you know, they followed up that, right. They followed up the quorum run with like a kind of unbalanced thing, Nathan, as you said, where they just, again, and you wound up with guys on the edge for Ohio state that didn't really weren't really prepared to like fight through blocks and make a tackle. They scored early, right on the little fake bubble inside handoff to the receiver mm-hmm. where they got wide and they got a guy in space again and had enough blockers. They just got themselves, not to the extent that we talked about ad nauseum with Joe Moorhead in Oregon, where they hit him on the edge with unbalanced formations and numbers mismatches, but it, it felt a little bit like that at key circumstances where they could hit them up the gut. And then when they did go wide, a lot of times you look like, oh man, well they got two blockers out there and there's only two Ohio State defensive players on that side. This looks like a 10 yard game. And it was. And so I thought Josh Gaddis called a good game. I I did think that for what they had, you had to give them a lot of credit. And then by the time you got to the end, the the opportunity was Ohio was there for Ohio State to make a stop and that's where I think the scheme and the couple of the big hits and everything by the end, it was a lot of, I think, mental, physical wearing them down, which again, guess who we've seen do that to teams all the time. Ohio state is normally a team wearing other people down. And this time Michigan absolutely wore Ohio state down by the time he got to like those last two touchdown drives. That's where it was somewhat to. but the defense, I really did the defense for like two and a half quarters really tried to hang in to let the offense take it away and the offense didn't do it. So that's what yeah. we'll get to a lot in the Tuesday pod.
0: Yeah, just a couple of plays Um, just like could have flipped some things here. Zach Harrison had a chance for a pick. Well, he read a screenplay. Well, he actually batted it down. He just couldn't hold on to it. And It's in the red zone. And that's we've seen that sometimes where Ohio State gets a, a turnover like that and then they go score. And now we're talking about a different situation. I think there's a situation when Ohio State goes up 10 to 7, 10 to 7 after Garrett Wilson's catch. And it's like That tipping point of, okay, if Michigan gets a stop here, Ohio State's going to go score. And now we're talking about a different game. I think that's just an interesting, you know, kind of checkpoint of the game. Um, Shout out to Michigan for going forward on fourth and one in plus territory and not kicking a field goal or punting. Nope, keep your foot on the gas. So, to that, that, those are just, I think, the things that needed to be pointed out. Just some checkpoints of kind of, they're probably small moments right now, but they're major if they go the opposite way.
2: And I do think we knew Michigan would do that. But also, real quick, two third downs after Ohio State scored to get it back to 28 20, there was a third and one on that next drive for Michigan where Steel Chambers jumped offside for no reason. Yeah.
1: Awful. No, there was the only two times Michigan lined up for third downs in the second half, Ohio State committed penalties. One was a pass yep. interference, and one was that. And then the next was that was on third and one. Then they went
2: like first down, second down, then on third and two, pass interference on Denzel Burke, where he just. Was in one on one coverage and grabbed the guy. So like two and again that was almost like a little bit of a that's a third and two. They're throwing it in one on one, right? That if Denzel broke now they probably go for it on fourth down there, but still it's like they had opportunities there. I have I, JT also kind of jumped with Steel Chambers on that, but I have no like what were they? What are you doing? Like, I can't like that's they the were jump ch-
0: outside on third and one is unbelievable. JT, I don't know. I mean, you're a defensive lineman. Don't jump outside. There were a lot of times when like Ohio State's back seven would show a blitz and then try to back out of it right before they snapped, but they didn't get set. And like Michigan, it's not really tempo, but they're just trying to catch them off guard a little bit. I'm not saying that's what happened there, but they did that a lot. They probably just caught steel chamber slipping right there. Yep.
1: One thing, when I started covering this team in 2019, it was jarring to me to watch, to to, to see just how completely... If a team tried to attack the edge on Ohio State's defense, they were just shooting themselves in the face with a bazooka. Like it was it was a miserable experience to watch teams try to do that. It was, it was pathetic on most weeks. And la- Saturday, Michigan said, not only do we not fear attacking Ohio State on the edge, we don't fear that speed on this defense. That's exactly where we're going to attack you. And they just did it, I thought, repeatedly. And so did Oregon. And that's why Ohio State is not playing for a championship this year. We're going to take a break because I think that might lead us into some of the conversations that we need to have about what is next for Ohio State off of this game. You're listening to Buckeye Talk. So obviously some big offseason decisions ahead. We're not jumping ahead of – for the purposes of this, we're going to jump past the bowl game. Ohio State will play a bowl game, most likely the Rose Bowl. I think at this stage, I, I haven't actually schemed out like the full list of of possibilities, but it would either be the Rose Bowl or you would think some other New Year's six game. I don't think they would fall completely out of that picture. Do you have well, a grasp on that, Doug?
2: I mean, I think like the, the, the thing that would mess up Ohio State's bowl stuff the most is if, it would be if Iowa beats Michigan. Yeah. And there's no Big Ten team in the playoff. And then Iowa goes to the Rose Bowl, Michigan maybe goes to a new year six and then do they get down to Ohio state for the new year six, or they go into whatever, then it's just crazy to be like, and then they go to like, whatever's next in the big 10 bowl rotation, which I have no idea about because (sighs) I have never covered one of those games other than the Gator bowl in 2011. That would be an, an area that we do not delve into. So we'll figure that out this week, but if Michigan wins, then Michigan goes to the playoff, and I think we'd be pretty certain that Ohio State would be the, the the Big Ten team that would rise up to fill the Rose Bowl spot.
1: If from where this team was at halftime of the Michigan State game, to then not going to a New Year's Six bowl, would that be like the biggest two week collapse in Ohio State football history?
2: Save it for the podcast, like. <laughs> The rest of both season may I mean, not happen. It is, yeah, I'm just, I'm just presenting. I mean, but I mean, it is, it is. This one is gonna linger. Yeah, if For you think, the,
1: the, yeah, if 2019 feels like a missed opportunity, this, this is, is rough. A magnification of that. This was, I
2: mean, we are 20 out of 28 spots in the playoff world were taken up by Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, and Oklahoma. Three of those four teams have taken up a spot in the last six times. The last six playoffs, three of the spots have been taken up by those four teams. And we are looking at a world where it's going to be none of them. And Ohio state had a chance. It's like, we know Georgia's defense is great, but it's like, you're, it's your show, baby. You're the team. That's been here. You're the team. That's won a national title. You're the team that has been on this tier. And Michigan took their spot, man. Like, this is, this is going to linger for a long time. Well, so
0: I didn't say I,
1: I think it's been since 2012 that Ohio State was not playing for either the Big Ten Championship or if for some reason they didn't make the Big Ten Championship, they were still in position to make the playoff. But one of those two things is always happening this week. Well... Fifteen, not
2: really. Because fifteen, they didn't make they lost to Michigan State. They beat Michigan and then Iowa, Michigan State was for a playoff spot, and they kind of knew they weren't gonna make the playoffs. So so but that was a team that up until Michigan State. But but the point is this is not normally how the end of the year feels for Ohio State fans. And to your point, Stephen, it's either a line in the sand where things are kind of gonna change, or it's not a line in the sand, and then you're gonna look back and be like, how did they blow mm-hmm. that year? Because they kick Michigan's butt every other year for that, you know, mm-hmm. in this huge period. But that's the year that weird year when Oklahoma State won the national title. That's the year Ohio State lost to Michigan, with with three guys who went, three receivers who wound up in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You know what I mean? Like I, but like that's either oh, is yeah. bad. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's real. either
2: either it's an inexplicable blip, or. A changing of the guard in the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry. Mm-hmm. Again, that sounds like a podcast. Which would you rather it be, Ohio State fans? It's like, of course you take the blip, but that, that's a rough blip then. Well,
0: but this is a blip that has a – this isn't a blip of, man, I don't know how you lost it, but nine times out of ten you win that game. This is a blip where it's like, no, you need to change now. Well, and Very quickly. But those are be- those can be okay blips
2: because, like, the Michigan yeah. State Big Ten championship loss in 2013 – was kind of like a momentary blip at the end of a 24 game winning streak to start urban Meyer's Mm -hmm. career. But then by making changes there, they set some stuff up and the Clemson shutout was like a momentary blip at the end of a remarkable day here and they changed and it set things up. And that's probably taking us into the next thing we're going to talk about here, Nathan.
1: Well, yeah. You know, you know who else had a blip was Michigan last year when they went two and four and they were looked like they might be on the verge of firing Harbaugh and they, made him restructure his contract and take a pay cut. And it was a very humbling moment. And he turned over half his staff, six new assistant coaches at Ohio State. Actually, it was six new assistant coaches. And in one of those spots, they had to hire twice because somebody, the guy they hired left for another gig. So uh, I don't think Ohio State needs an overhaul, but defensive changes are coming. What did this game and this, this resolution to the season, the regular season, tell us about what it has to come next for Ohio State. We already talked a little bit about, I think, on the post game, or was that over dinner? Saturday was a long day. I can't remember how much we talked about this on Saturday, on, on the actual podcast. But a change well, is coming at defensive coordinator.
2: They need a high-level schemer. They need a high-level schemer on the defensive side of the ball. And that guy's not on the staff right now. So they have to go get that. And I think the way that Ryan Day thinks the way he's talked about things to me it feels like an nfl hire either it's a guy that's in the nfl right now or a guy with nfl experience also maybe you throw three and a half million dollars a year like jim leonard the wisconsin defensive coordinator maybe just maybe brett Ven- uh, brett Venables is probably gonna get the oklahoma job but like uh, you know like be crazy Right, I mean, why is Marcus Freeman, Notre Dame's defensive coordinator, not Ohio State's defensive coordinator? Right, like be crazy. Now, again, some of these some of these really good defensive coordinators are going to jump and get get head jobs, but I just think that that's a necessity. But Nathan, give your this was a dinnertime theory, I think, of yours about how how they could manage a spot. We we are expecting that all the recruiting head coaching carousel may work its way down to an Ohio State assistant. Not that they're going to get a power five job, but that as guys move up, they may take one of the jobs that becomes open. Give your Kevin Wilson theory.
1: Well, and there are some lower level jobs that are open right now too, such as Akron, which is about as low a level as you can get in, uh, FCS or FBS football right now. Um, and my thought was, and Bruce Feldman reported yesterday that, that, uh, Kevin Wilson was in the mix for the Akron job, but then Pete Thamel reported that that's probably going to be Joe Moorhead, which was shocking to me because I would think that in this uh, coaching cycle, Joe Moorhead could get a much better job than a team that's three and 17 over the past two years, three years. But they're sorry, three and what I say, three and 17. They're worse than that. Three and 27 over the past. Nobody six, cares. It's OK. Three years. Anyway, my, my theory was it's Kevin Wilson, <laughs> Kevin Wilson leaves for another job, because right now one of the problems we have that Ohio State has is an imbalanced structure on the coaching staff. When you brought Parker Fleming on to be the special teams coordinator and you at the same time you're losing Greg Madison, then you imbalanced how many defensive and offensive coaches you have. We talked about that at the time it happened because Parker Fleming's background besides special teams is all on offense. He had never been a defensive coach that I could find like any tangible experience that he really had coaching on defense in the past. So if Kevin Wilson leaves – then don't hire an offensive coordinator to replace him. Hire a defensive coach in that position. Ryan Day is the offensive coordinator, right? Ryan Day calls the plays. Like, I know Kevin Wilson's been a benefit to him these first few years as a, you know, a person with previous head coaching experience, knows how to run a program, knows a lot of the logistical things you have to do, the administrative things you have to do. That's a help. He is a good offensive mind as well in his own right. He's won the Broyles Award before. He's an, a candidate finalist for it again this year. Like, Kevin that's was, all fake. That's all fake crap, though. But I'm just, just saying the,
2: like, the school that dominates. Say, hey, give this guy a pat on the back this year. The Broyles reward. I mean,
0: uh, but fine, it, but definitely, fine. it definitely fake should have been crap. hard line,
2: but, you know, fake crap, just like every college football award is.
1: That's fine. I'm just saying that he, he's been around. He's done some things. His experience, I think, was valuable to the staff the last few years. But I don't think you need a second scheming mind on off. I mean, this is what Ryan Day does. Now, I, as soon as we say that. Then when the offense struggles in the future and they do what I'm suggesting, then we're going to say, well, Ryan Day needs to have someone else call and plays and take stuff off his plate because he's the head coach. I understand. But if you're going to structure your staff this way, I don't think you can. This staff needs more defensive coaches. And I also think that they need to explore how they have the defensive backs coached right now, because right now when Kerry Combs was the defensive coordinator and they made it a point that they were putting Parker Fleming with the defensive backs to help Matt Barnes so that Kerry Combs could spend more time just on defensive coordinator things. But that leaves Matt Barnes now overseeing two very different rooms at the same time between the cornerbacks and the safeties and that safety room. Now, when Ryan Day got here in 2019, that safety room uh, populated one position in the starting lineup and that was free safety. And on top of that, you had Jordan Fuller. And two years later, that safety room populates three positions in the starting lineup. And then you also have two starters at cornerback. So that seems to me to be a lot to put under one guy and that they probably need to think about restructuring that. So you have a safeties coach and a cornerbacks coach or hire a defensive coordinator who I guess, as you would have done with Kerry Combs, could, you could split those duties. But as we saw, I, I think that was a, a bit of a problem in how things fell apart here these last couple of years.
0: The problem I mean, is go ahead, Steve. They, they put the cornerbacks and the safeties in the same room in 2019 because they had no like, they were terrible in 2018 and it worked. But that doesn't maybe that doesn't work anymore. Maybe they need to go back to being separate again.
2: I mean that they've gone back and forth over the years. It's like if they do one thing and then it's like, Oh, if you're together, that's good communication. But if you're apart, then maybe you can drill down on your stuff a little bit more. I mean, Kerry Combs is is a defensive back guy. And Matt Barnes is a defensive back guy. And Parker Fleming is an offensive guy. So the bottom line I do think is, I don't know the idea that like, they don't need it. I think they maybe do need a reshuffling. And I don't think as much as I really think they need and will drop a comprehensive scheming defensive coordinator on top of this staff. I don't think like, I really like your Kevin Wilson plan, but say Kevin Wilson leaves and you, you lose an offensive coordinator and you hire a defensive coordinator. You don't, I don't think you just drop that on top of this staff though. And it's like, Hey, I'm the defensive coordinator and Matt Barnes, Kerry Combs out Washington and Larry Johnson, like work under that coordinator. I, I don't, I don't think that's it.
0: Larry Johnson's the only one who should be back on the staff next year.
2: And it's one of those like Matt Barnes. I mean, if he got thrown in, like, I don't know. It feels like Ryan Day likes Matt Barnes. I don't know. I don't think Matt Barnes would be like, I was a coordinator. And I'm going to leave because you didn't make me the permanence. Like, did you watch the Michigan game? So um, I just think they need to holistically evaluate things, but linebacker. Development this year was a problem and Al Washington is a linebackers coach. So, but they need, they need, they need a, I think a new way of thinking. I think they need a new dynamic and I think they need more than like adding one person to make that happen. So I think there are a variety of opportunities to sort of fit things together, but I am very, very strongly in the camp of, Add make that flip where you lose a full time offensive coach and add a full time defensive coach. And then, Steven, you were saying at dinner, we were saying, like, and then Tony Alford becomes the run game coordinator, Brian Hartline becomes the pass game coordinator, and you're yeah. off and running, and everybody's happy. And Ryan Day is still Ryan Day. And it makes sense
0: because Tony Alford's definitely going to put his name out there to see if there's a head coaching job for him. I mean, Colorado State, he was in the running for that before they went in a different direction. So maybe that's what keeps Tony offered here. If you give him a, you know, a, 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 a you know, a pay raise and more responsibility, Brian Hartline, we've had the conversation of what does he want? He played in the NFL. He's got all this money. So he has no reason to leave. But that doesn't mean he just only wants to be the wide receiver coach forever. This is an opportunity, for one, for you to keep Tony Alford around, which keeps that running back recruiting going and keeps that development going because you know, Travion's going to be a Doak Walker Award finalist for the next two years and maybe a Heisman finalist and all the other good stuff. Um, and then Brian Hartline, we see what he's doing. So you start to give them more responsibility – which takes some more off of Ryan Day's plate. I don't think Ryan Day has to give up play calling duties, but I do think he needs to start heading down the road that ends there, which means giving more responsibility to other people and not just being, it's my offense, we're going to do it my way. It's my defense, we're going to do it my way. Get out of the – hire somebody on defense and get out of the way and, a, and empower the guys on offense that you have on your staff.
1: Doug, I thought you said something smart at dinner. Boy, this is, we should have just been podcasting over dinner that night. <laughs> Uh, it's a good dinner. I had a good turkey burger.
2: I have completely lost the grasp of when am I having a conversation and when am I on a podcast? As you guys witnessed when I was talking to my daughter in the back seat of the drive-on. Yeah. And I am, I. it's all, it's, my whole life is like half reality and half podcast and I can't remember which is
1: which. Called my mom as I was driving home from Ann Arbor yesterday, and because I only talked to my mom in the car this time of year, basically. And um, we started talking about the game, and I just started talking about what had happened. And I felt like I was doing a podcast with my mom because I was just, it was a very podcasty description of everything that happened, in my opinion, of of why it had unfolded that way. But um, you said something at dinner that was when when a crisis happens like this, not crisis, but wasn't the word you used but when, when you get to a point like this, you don't need to grab harder. If you're Ryan day, you need to let go. Yeah. That,
2: that it's, I I don't think they need more, like more Ryan day. Like, Hey, this is not, this is not going the way I want it to be. I don't trust anybody else. Like, I, I think that especially applies to a defensive hire. Now you can hire a guy that you like the style of defense he plays, as well as the competence in which is the way his defense plays. Right. So, so Ryan Day has control of that, but you have. I think he has to let the defensive guy be the defensive guy, and and whatever this conversation has been over the years of it was Jeff Halfley's defense. No, it was Ryan Day. That was Ryan Day's defense, and Jeff Halfley was running it. And then when they hired Kerry Combs, Kerry Combs had to come in and kind of fit within the Ryan day structure and all that stuff. Ryan day has to give that side of the ball to the person he hires and they have to pay the money. And again, here's Doug, who doesn't, like I said, you have to go get a difference maker. So everybody makes too much money. It's it's ridiculous schools like Michigan state and Penn state and Baylor are paying to keep guys that they're desperate to keep because they're game changers for those programs. And the result is everybody who's actually a better coach than them is going to be like, "Well, well, Dave Aranda and and Mel Tucker making that. And now the higher paid guys are going to have to make more money and everybody makes more money in college football gets more ridiculous, but they're going to have to pay somebody. So like they have to find an answer, but, but you, you have to sell it to a high level guy by telling him it's your, it's your deal, man. So like Ryan day, whatever this thing has been with Ryan day and trying to assert his power on their style of defense, they play. It's like, that it has to end. So and Urban Meyer has done it before. Urban Meyer for all, not for all his. Urban Meyer is one of the best coaches in college football history. Urban didn't make great hires every single time. No coach makes great hires every single time. But Urban made some good hires where he went and got guys that he didn't have personal relationships with. He just liked what they did. And then he let them do it. Tom Herman, Chris Ash, Ryan Day is one of them. Ryan Day has to do that. And so as I... have this time of year, you always play the game. You're looking through Ryan Day's past. You're looking through, okay, who was on the Eagles staff with him? Oh, well, who was a GA at Temple when he was there whatever? And that would have led you to Jeff Halfley, right? I mean, it's fun to play that game. But I also kind of don't want to play that game because I don't want him to hire somebody who knows. Hire the best guy. I don't care if you know him. So he, we- every single person he's hired so far, he's known. I would That's like yours, him to yes. hire. Well, the, and then that, that, that yes. True. Yeah, the one that happened. he did is like, they didn't whatever, it didn't work. Yeah, But, but point taken, but go hire a very
1: competent stranger. I think when you're starting a staff, I think that familiarity is probably important to some extent you're it. It it cuts down the, the learning curve on some things, makes communication easier. You feel like you have uh, when, when it's guys and not just because they're your buddies, but if they're good coaches who happen to be your buddies, Um, and and that's important going back to the Bill Davis conversation, (laughs) then, then I think that that's good. You've got, there's a level of support there. You guys can kind of, you know, come together, but the farther along you get, that becomes much, much, much less important to me. And to the point now where I think I've always been a little bit confused as to why he doesn't just do what urban Meyer did with him, frankly, which is go just hire the progressive bright young mind, go hire the Ryan day defense. And say, here you go. Now, you would know better than I do, Doug, because um, you're here at the time, what sort of strictures Day was given as far as what the offense had to look like. But he, it's obviously has adapted year to year the times that he's been here because the quarterback has been pretty significantly different kind of bouncing around from year to year. And I, so I, I don't understand why he doesn't just with the Ryan Day of defense. And then also why he doesn't say, like, why you would put that out there, like, well, we have to run – This scheme, this is our scheme, rather than let the guy come in and say, here's who we have on defense. Create the scheme based on that.
2: Well, but every defensive coordinator has what they run anyway. I mean, no defensive coordinator who's established is going to come in and base his scheme off the personnel. He's going to have his style. But my point would be. Ryan Day will lean toward a guy who plays defense how he wants to be played, but just hire the best guy. Right. So I do like let the defensive coordinator make that decision. If you find a guy who plays three safeties or a guy who plays, you know, whatever, one safety or who loves to blitz or doesn't love the blitz, maybe. It, but if he's really good at it, just go do that. And to your point, like Ryan Day, it was still always like, oh, it's the Urban Meyer offense. But Ryan Day took it to the next evolution of the Urban Meyer offense, because after 2016, it was like they can't throw. And Urban was like, we got to be able to throw. So he hired a guy that was going to help him throw. And so they did. So they need – this to me is a lot like the, the Chris Ash hire, though. Right? The Chris Ash was a defensive coordinator at Wisconsin, followed Brett Bielema to Arkansas. And then when they had defensive troubles in 2013, Urban was like, what are we doing? And like, just was like, I'm going to go get that guy. And that was it. Random. Chris Ash Chris wanted to come here because it was Urban Meyer head coach finishing school. It's a great opportunity. Yeah. They should be able to go hire the current defensive coordinator – at like every school except six right just go get the best coordinator in college football or go get a guy who's in the NFL right now and wants to be a coordinator
0: random thought that might sound crazy and if it is that's fine is Ryan Day's options are they limited by the fact that he has the greatest defensive line coach of all time and so they have to play a four down front because you're not going to not have that when Barry Johnson's your defensive line coach, because if you really think about a lot of the top tier programs aren't running four down fronts, they're in three fours with a standing, a standing edge rusher. And you can't, Barry Johnson's here. You're going to have four defensive linemen. And does that limit the options when maybe some of the better defensive minds right now are three, four guys? And how much does that open whenever Larry Johnson retires?
2: I mean, no matter how, how successful your 70-year-old defensive line coach is after this season, I would not let his preferences yeah. determine who you hire as your defensive coordinator, unless you're going to make him the defensive coordinator.
1: I think that's a, a fair way to put that. I would also say that if they're this married to the four down front that worked so well, then they have to get their defensive ends back to the level that the four down front worked so well. Yeah. And they're not this last couple of years. They're just not. Like, they're good. But they're not. They're not doing what the four down. What what they always had one end for it. For how many years in a row did they have one end at that level, that elite level, that 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 makes that kind of difference? And you can be, well, who cares what front you're playing when it's Chase Young up there and Joey Bosa and Nick Bosa and those guys? So they've got to get somebody who can have that kind of presence again, uh, or then I think then the, the that's what makes the four down front potentially a liability. Seven years they had that. Right. 13 to 19. And then
2: in this Michigan game, there was a team that had that and it wasn't Ohio State. Mm -hmm.
1: By the way, just to correct the record, the Broyles Award finalists were just announced and Kevin Wilson is not one of them. So I misspoke there. But Georgia's defensive coordinator, obviously, and Oklahoma State's defensive coordinator, both are finalists for the Broyles Award.
2: Who's Oklahoma State's defensive coordinator?
1: Uh, I just. eh. Oh, I thought you Knowles. Jim Knowles. I did. But then I then it went away.
0: So Ryan, they should go talk to Jim Knowles. Probably. But again, a I think it is, I, th- I
1: think there's going to be a lot of NFL stuff involved there. But yeah, go ahead. What did Saturday tell us about Ohio State's 2022 personnel? The CJ Hicks is going to start at linebacker.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, dude, can we do that? Or can we just like right now pick? who is who we think is going to be a starter regardless of what's going on. And then, no, not at the end okay. of a,
2: of an hour and 20 minute podcast when we have, okay, cool. <laughs> seven months of off
0: season podcasts to do. Yeah. No, we should we I mean, probably, I only awesome have four guys that I'm sure too. about. There's, I'm, there's only four guys. I'm 100% sure about. And
2: one of them come, is CJ Hicks. And he's not even here yet. Come back in February for the conclusion <laughs> of that thought on a random desperate Thursday. We're trying to figure out what to talk about.
1: Just to double back real quick on the staff stuff. Any chance that Kerry Combs stays here under any circumstances? Not as defensive coordinator. I cannot imagine it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'll leave 5% window, but yeah, I can't see it either.
2: Because here's the thing. They have to hire a schemer, but like, then everybody else has to recruit their butts off, right? I mean, I do think mm-hmm. that that I mean every college coach has to recruit, but there were times... Like, even when Tom Herman left and Tom Herman had all these co- Texas connections and they were like, well, we have to hire a quarterbacks coach. We'll be a co-OC. But, like, he also needs us to help recruit in Texas. And Tim Beck was at Nebraska, was – I think had been a high school coach in Texas, was big time in Texas, and he checked all those boxes. I don't care if the new defensive coordinator can recruit. Like that, Like, everybody else has to recruit. Like, you need a schemer. So, as it turned out, like, Ryan Day came back and schemed it up. And then Ryan Day got it done in recruiting too. Like Ryan Day really got it done in recruiting. So great. Awesome. If that's, but that's a bonus. They need a high-level defensive designer and play caller. And then every other guy on the staff has to recruit like crazy. So we can be dismissive of Kerry Combs' contributions as a coordinator the last two years. But you everybody knows you cannot be dismissive of his contributions to Ohio State over the last decade as a position coach and especially as a recruiter. And that will be a huge hole in recruiting. But I just don't know what it looks like. I don't, I just, I just don't know unless it's almost like unless Kerry just decides like I took my shot and that's it. And not to say just a position coach, but I'm going back to the thing that I was before and that's it. Like, I'm not worried about anything else. I'll recruit my butt off, do the things that I do best and hang out with the grandkids. But I just think it's a tough pill to swallow. And like, at some point, like, how good are you? Is it like, if your team, if your team can't function without Kerry Combs, it's like, what are you doing? Like you get to go find just go find somebody else who can coach a position and recruit as well as Kerry Combs. But I just, it doesn't feel like it's connected anymore.
1: We will see how that plays out in the coming weeks. Listen to Tuesday's pod. We're going to do this same thing, but with the offense and get the text. I know that the regular season is over. I know that it's not going to be the postseason that Ohio State fans want, but a lot of stuff is going to start happening here. All these things that we just talked about, the, the speculative stuff, what happens with the staff, what happens with personnel, basically that whole last podcast, all those answers are going to start coming out. And the first place that we report them will be to our tech subscribers, 614-350-3315. And we're going to keep doing Buckeye Talk five days a week. For Stephen Means and for Doug Lameris. I'm Nathan Baird. That was Buckeye Talk.